going to come round to the Word of God now. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to the book of Jonah, and we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3 today. And this is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began preaching, uh, began by going to a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered in sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he threatened. Every so often I come to write a sermon and prepare and just get a sense that this could be a significant moment and a significant message for us as a church right now. And I believe this is one of them this morning. So let's pray before we come around to this and open it up together. Father God, we pray this morning that as we come round to your words, that you will give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today, both as a church and as individuals. Lord, we long to hear your voice. Lord, let us not just simply sit comfortably today in our seats, but let us be challenged, let our hearts be stirred, and let us call, uh, be obedient to your call today. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah Lamphere saw that there was a great need in the city of New York. He noticed that this city was a city which really needed a touch from God, so he decided that he was going to do something about it. And he believed that God was calling him to set up a prayer meeting every single Wednesday, specifically aimed at businessmen. So that's exactly what he did. He set up his prayer meeting and he encouraged as many businessmen as he knew. He went around the city handing out flyers and saying, doesn't matter how long you can come, we're going to get together and we're going to pray between 12 and 1. If you can come for five minutes, come for five minutes. If you can come for 10, come for 10. If you can come for the whole thing, come for the whole thing. And then on September the 23rd, 1857, the first prayer meeting 
took place. When the day came, he was ready to welcome the businessman that he had hoped and prayed might come along to this meeting with him. And he sat there at 12 o'clock and no one turned up. 12.10 rolls around, still no one in the building. 12.20 rolls around, still no one. Had he misheard what God had said to him? Had he been so vulnerable to say, I'm going to step out in faith here, but actually got it totally and utterly wrong? But he didn't throw in the towel. He stood firm and he remained praying. Then all of a sudden at 12.30 on that particular day, a man turned up to pray with him. And then another, and then another, and then another, until a total of six people started this prayer meeting on that particular Wednesday. And he didn't despise the day of small things and the day of small beginnings. And he decided that they were going to keep on and press on and press in. And they were going to meet the following Wednesday and the following Wednesday and the following Wednesday. The second Wednesday, 20 people turned up, followed by 40 the week after that. So much so that they had to think about getting a bigger premises and a bigger room. And then in October, October the 10th, in fact, 1857, the stock market crashed. People lost everything in a matter of moments. Desperation for God began to increase in the lives of people of that city. So much so that this prayer meeting eventually went not only weekly, but daily, to the point where every single day, 3,000 people ended up turning up at the Fulton Street prayer meeting in order to seek God's revival. It's one of those words, isn't it, which gets banded about church time and time again. We talk about the revivals of old. We love to hear stories like this story that I have just told about how God moves so powerfully and people gather and people seek after God. We love to hear stories about how entire cities are changed because God moves in them and how people might just simply walk past the church building and be convicted of their sin and realize that they need God in their life. We sing songs about revival. We pray for revival, that people would really, truly come to God, not only the ones and the twos, but in their hundreds and thousands. And yet, personally, in my life, I've never witnessed it. I've never seen anything like that personally. I mean, I've seen glimmers of what God does and what God is doing in the hearts and the lives of people. But I don't know about you, but when it comes to things like this, there is so much more that I am longing for. There is so much more that I want to see God do here in this city of Plymouth. I, I long to see God change and transform this area of Peville that we find ourselves in. I long to see this city totally and utterly consumed with the love of God. And you know, I believe that revival doesn't have to be a far-fetched theological concept. I believe that God is wanting to do amazing things to, through, and for his church in order to impact the city and then transform the world. The church, over the course of history, and I'm not talking about Hope Baptist Church, I'm talking about the church in general, the church over the course of history have come up with many great and clever strategies, haven't they, to bring about some sort of revival. They've tried numerous schemes. They've run many well-meaning courses in order to help people get closer to God. But for some reason, like I said, I've never really seen it happen. 
And just to understand what I'm talking about when I talk about things like revival, what I'm talking about is a reawakening where people really do turn to God. They seek God when maybe they haven't been seeking him before, that we see a large number of people turn to God in their hundreds and their thousands and want to live for him. We live, don't we, in a pretty godless society where people just aren't really interested in God. And as a result, for so many, life is just messed up. You know, I believe that God has something better for us. I believe that God has something better for this city that we find ourselves in. And my heart's desire is to see people realize that for themselves. We sing songs about these kind of things, but I want to see it become a reality. You know, I'm not knocking any attempts to bring about some sort of revival that have happened in churches. Many great initiatives have done many good things in order to reach people with the gospel and have seen lives changed. But I believe God wants to do more. And I want to suggest today that the key to bringing about revival is not to start a new initiative. It's not in a particular style of worship, thank God for that. It's not in a particular denomination, but the key for revival is simple, and it's found in what we've read together in Jonah chapter 3. So we first met Jonah a couple of weeks ago, and we were reminded that Jonah was asked to do a task which he couldn't really understand, and it can only be described as a mammoth task, really. He was asked to go to one of the superpowers of the day and tell them that the way they were living was basically wrong, and they needed to change. Jonah did not think that this group of people were worthy of God's grace and God's mercy, so he decides that he's not going to do what God has asked him to do. Instead, he's going to attempt to flee from the presence of God and go in the opposite direction. And that's exactly what he does. He boards a boat to a place called Tarshish, which is in southern Spain today. And he gets on the boat and he falls asleep. And whilst he's asleep, a fierce storm erupts. And as the fierce storm erupts, and after much deliberation, and after much praying to a whole bunch of false gods from the sailors who are on the boat, Jonah confesses that the reason this storm has come about is because of his stance and the things that he has done, and the only way to save them all is to throw him overboard. And that's exactly what these sailors do. Jonah ends up sinking to the depths of the ocean and is swallowed up by a great fish. He ends up spending three days in the belly of that fish. And there, in desperation, he cries out to God and he rededicates himself to God in the process. And he's eventually spat out onto dry land. And that's where we pick up the story today. And after he is spat out, he eventually goes and does what he was always meant to do. Let me tell you another story. There was a man called Charles B. Darrow, and he had this goal in his life that he was determined that he was going to become a millionaire. This time next year, Rodney, we're going to be millionaires. That was his life's goal. Not too unusual in this day and age, but Charles lived in what was known as the Roaring Twenties, a time when a million dollars was an enormous sum of money. He married his wife, a lady called Esther, promising her that one day they would be millionaires. And then tragedy struck. In 1929, the Great Depression hit. And both Charles and Esther, they lost, lost their jobs. 
They had to remortgage their home. They lost their cars. They used up more or less their entire life's savings. Charles was crushed. He sat in his house, depressed, until one day he turned to his wife and he says to her, you can leave if you want to. After all, it's clear we're never going to reach our goal. Esther, though, wasn't about to leave Charles. She told Charles that they would still one day reach their goal. But they needed to do something every day to keep their dream alive. Keep it alive, Charles responds. It's dead. We failed. But Esther didn't believe that. Instead, she suggested that they make some time every single night to get together after dinner to discuss what it might be that can help them to reach their goal. So that's what they did. And soon after starting their nightly conversations, Charles decides that he's going to make some play money. Play money, after all, was quite appealing because they had nothing when it comes to the real thing. So they could sit there and they could lift their minds and lift their dreams by pretending with all this money that they made. And as they sat there each night, they pretended and they bought things like houses and properties and other buildings. Soon, their conversations turned into a fully-fledged game with a board, dice, cards, little houses, little hotels. And you've probably guessed it, the beginning of the game, which probably most of us have got in our cupboards, was born. Monopoly was born in, and copyrighted in 1935. And the Parker brothers bought it off Charles. And you probably have guessed that they bought the rights to this game for $1 million. What the account of Jonah teaches us today and what we saw in our comeback series over the past few months together is that failure, disappointment, and disillusionment doesn't have to destroy our lives. We can learn a lot in the process and the pain and everything that we go through, and we can learn a lot through the process of failure, just like Jonah did. His point of failure and his position inside the belly of that fish ultimately caused him to surrender to God. The truth is, for Jonah, what happened in the belly of that fish led to his salvation. His act of surrender was the thing which ultimately saved him. And his act of surrender ultimately set into motion the wheels for revival for the people of Nineveh. So what then? If we're talking together about revival, what are the keys to revival? If we're going to see a move of God in our day and generation, if we're going to see people turn to God, if we're going to see our personal evangelism bear fruit in the lives of those that we care about and those that we love and those that we're longing to see come to know Jesus, how does that happen? Well, I believe that this story teaches us three simple steps. Number one, the key to any revival the first key is simple. In order to see revival come in, in the lives of those around us, the heart of the believers must be revived first. Just as we saw with Jonah when he was in the belly of that fish last week, when in sheer desperation he falls to his knees and he cries out to God in repentance, it's the start of any revival. It was once said that revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. If we as God's people in 2021 want to see revival in this day and generation, it has to be simply more than hoping for it. 
It has to be simply more than praying for it as well. Now, don't get me wrong. You won't have any kind of revival without a devoted people on their knees in prayer. It's a vital component, but we need more. There has to be a turning back to God in full and total obedience from the people of God. And that's exactly what Jonah did. Jonah brought about revival in the city of Nineveh because he finally obeyed what God had always asked him to do in the first place. Obedience to God brings revival to the heart and then it spreads to others. In many respects, I guess, it's a bit like a forest fire, isn't it? A forest fire starts with a tiny spark, which then engulfs a tree in flames. And that tree then touches other trees, which then get engulfed in flames as well. And so on and so forth until the whole forest is on fire. When Christians, when you and I get so consumed with the love of God, when we are so totally and utterly devoted to him, it becomes infectious. And when we're so passionate and we're so fired up for him, people then get a glimpse of who he is. The danger for us is, though, we very much become like the churches that we read about in the book of Revelation. And there are two churches that I want to highlight in that book this morning. The church in Ephesus, we've talked about them a little bit before. Ephesus chapter 2, where Jesus, uh, Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, guys, I know what you're doing. I know you're trying your best. I know you're trying to be the best that you can be. You're trying to do everything in a true and right way, the way that I've shown you but there's something which is missing. You see, on the outside, you're doing all the right things, but hold this against you, you've lost sight of your first love. You've lost sight of the very reason you're doing all the right things in the first place. You know, the church, the world, rather, does not need churches simply doing the right things in order to make life a better place. We don't need more churches doing more things. The world needs churches which are so full of the people who are in love with Jesus in such an infectious way that they're so passionate about him and so passionate about the gospel. They're so consumed with his love that it rubs off on others. The other church I want to highlight in the book of Revelation It's the church in Laodicea. You can read about it for yourself, where Jesus looks at this church in Laodicea and he says to them, hey guys, you know what? You are not hot nor cold. You have become lukewarm in your life and in your faith and in your love for me. On the outside, don't get me wrong, you portray this air of religiosity like you've got it all together, but the reality is it means nothing. It's all ceremony. You know, the world does not need more religion. The world needs churches full of people who are so on fire for him that the world looks at the church and says, you know what, I need something that they have got. So let me ask you today, Christian, how are you doing in your faith walk right now? How are you doing in your relationship with Jesus right now? Have you lost sight of your first love? Maybe you are feeling a bit lukewarm in your faith right now as well. There was a time when you were really hot and you were on fire for Jesus. But actually right now, it all just feels like you're going through the motions. I guess if we're honest, 
Maybe we've all been in those places over the course of this COVID season where we've carried on going through the motions to some extent. We've either come along to church or we've watched online, but it feels like we've lost sight of our first love. We're not doing it because we want to be close to Jesus anymore. We're doing it because that's what we've always done. Or maybe we're just a bit lukewarm right now. We're not hot nor cold. We're just going through the motions. I'll be honest, there have been many times over these last two years where I have felt in exactly both of those places at times, where it has been just so hard to be passionate about Jesus with everything which has been going on in the world. Someone once said that revival is nothing else than a new beginning of obedience towards God. Where are you at right now? Does your heart need to be revived today? Because that's what happened for Jonah, isn't it? When he was in the belly of that whale, he was able to bring about revival to the people of Nineveh because he got on his knees and he obeyed God. Obedience to God and his call will always bring about revival in our hearts and then it spreads to others. Number two, The second key to revival is that we begin to follow our calling. Jonah, after being vomited out of the mouth of the fish, does exactly what he was always supposed to do in the first place. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches to the people of Nineveh and he tells them what they need to hear. And you know, when I was at college, when I was at Bible college, there was always a time which we absolutely hated because we had preaching classes every so often where we would have to give a short sermon to the rest of the people who were in our cohort at college and then we were critiqued by those people. We would stand and we would preach and then they would tell us all the things that they thought we did well and all the things that they thought we did badly. And let me tell you, we all hated those classes because we all cringed as we preached and then heard the critique which came back at us every single time. No one likes to hear it, but it was really important to. And I'll tell you something, if Jonah was in one of my preaching classes and he preached a sermon, he preached to the people of Nineveh, I would have said to him, Jonah, that's probably the worst sermon that I have ever heard in my life. Sorry, mate, but it was rubbish. Because notice, when Jonah preaches to the people of Nineveh, he doesn't tell them that God loves them and wants to give them a second chance. He doesn't tell them of the hope that they could have if only they turned to God and followed him. He doesn't tell them that God will forgive them of their sin if only they turn to him. This is what he says. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. There's a message of hope for you right there, isn't there? You're all going to die in 40 days. I say it's the worst sermon that I've ever heard. I've never preached a sermon and seen even half a city come to know Jesus. So he was obviously doing something right when he does this. What happens? Jonah obeys God. Jonah follows the calling that God has given on his life. And then God shows up. The truth is, When we start listening and when we start obeying the teachings and the commands of Jesus, when we follow the calling that God has put on our life, revival can and will follow. What is it that Jesus has told us to do? Well, we read this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the ends of the age. Do we see a pattern which is emerging here? Forget the past. Let go of the past. Give it to God. Draw close to Jesus again. And do what he has asked you to do. And that's what can bring about revival. Paul puts it a lot better in Philippians chapter 3 when he says this, Brothers, I do not consider that I have already made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting that which lies behind and straining forward towards which lies ahead, I press on towards the goal and the prize, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The hope of revival lies in the heart and the actions of the church of Jesus Christ. God has always used obedient people to bring about revival in the world. The key to revival, forget the past. Let go of those things which have held you back. Let Jesus deal with them. Draw close to him again. Do what he asks you to do and then see what he will do in your life. The next key. Well, from the account of Jonah that brings about revival to the people of Nineveh, what we see in the life of Jonah and the life of the people of Nineveh is a humble and repentant heart. The people of Nineveh, when they heard this message of Jonah, they repented of their sins. They turned from their wicked ways and God revives them. They admitted their sin. They asked for God's forgiveness and they turned. But the sad truth is for the city of Nineveh, that this revival didn't really last all that long. History tells us that this repentance that came over them at this point was short-lived. Soon that they would fall back into their sinful and their wicked ways. And the prophet Nahum would be sent to the same city and to the same people years later. And that time they would fail to repent and they would face the consequences. You know, we should never take the grace and the mercy of God for granted. We need to realize what you and I have been saved from first. Paul warns that grace is not a license for us to sin, and he talks about it in Romans chapter 6. This is what he says. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Forgetting the past means leaving those things in the past which have bound us totally and utterly behind. We can't keep looking back and looking over our shoulder. You've left that life behind and you're all in for Jesus. If you keep looking back, we never see what God is wanting to do in our lives today and moving forward. I want to finish with one of my favorite Bible verses. It's found in 2 Chronicles 7.14, and this is what it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their lands. The final key to revival is to pray. No revival that has ever happened has happened without the church of Jesus Christ on its knees, seeking the Father in prayer. Because 
It's at that point and in that moment where we draw close to God. And it's in that point and that moment where we fall more in love with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's at that point and in that moment when we're praying, and in particular praying together, that we catch a glimpse of the heart of God for a hurting world today.